Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Hamilton has moved into the gray zone, but there's more to it than meets the eye. Case numbers are not lining up with occupied ICU beds, and the tracking isn't where it should be. We'll explain. Uh, in about a year, we're going to be having a provincial election on Ontario, and it looks like the governing conservatives are getting ready ahead of time by trying to raise the maximum amount somebody can donate to political parties. Details coming up. And after speaking out against China, Canadian MP Michael Chong has been sanctioned by the Chinese government. We speak with Michael Chong, get his opinion on why he was singled out and what Canada needs to do. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A little while ago, the Toronto Star did some analysis of this. Uh, and... Uh, they talked about specific areas of this, and, and the discrepancy here is, is remarkable, uh, and the rationale as to why the government seems to be using one set of numbers and other agencies are using others uh, is, well, got a lot of people scratching their heads. Joining us to talk about this is Ed Tubb. Ed is the assignment editor for the Toronto Star, focusing on crime, justice, and COVID-19 data, who has done uh, uh, an analytical study of this, and he joins us on the Bill Keller Show uh, to give us his read on this. Ed, thanks for the time. Great to have you on the show today. I'm uh, no, happy to be here. Let me right up front. The obvious question: Why is the government using a different set of criteria than, well, for instance, as you uh, mentioned here, the Critical Care Services Ontario branch, uh, which is accumulating data at the same time? Why the discrepancy? Well, it, the difference is, I, I think that the government has just always been doing it one way, and that way has has led to this big gap, and it's never quite been changed on the public data that's available to you or I to go look at it. Uh, the Ontario.ca dashboard. So the, the difference is uh, in uh, intensive care capacities. So these are the, the people who are the most sick at the most risk of dying who are taking up intensive care beds. Uh, and what I learned from, from uh, digging around with, uh, with the ministry and looking at this data is that um, the official number that's on the Ontario.ca webpage uh, excludes people who have stopped testing positive for COVID-19, like they don't have the active virus in them anymore, um, whether or not they've actually ever left their ICU bed. So uh, that is actually quite a lot of people who uh, who are still in ICU beds for a long time after they test positive and get sick and get severely ill. Um, these are people who have like long COVID or, or complications related to COVID. Um, and they're still in an ICU bed, they're still taking up capacity, but they don't show up in the official numbers put out by Ontario uh, on, their, uh, on their daily dashboard that we all rely on. Um, the real better numbers are put out by an agency called Critical Care Services Ontario, and that data is considerably higher. So if you look at what uh, CCSO is putting out uh, as of this morning, um, there are 409 people in Ontario ICU beds who have COVID or, or these COVID complications. And that number is pretty much right at the peak we saw in wave two. The, the, the absolute maximum that number ever got in January was 415. So we are right back up there. So, Ed, when you looked into this, uh, does the government defend their data? Did they, do they think theirs is the better way? No, the funny thing is they didn't. Um, oh. uh, this is why I think it was it was more something like uh, like this is the way they've always done it. Um, their response to us when we asked them about it um, and followed up, uh, pointing out that this doesn't make very much sense at all. Um, their response is that they would change their data 
um, to uh, match the CCSO um, methodology. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. So uh, that, that story that we first put out is, is now about two weeks ago. Uh, and so far, the, the Ontario main data has not changed to, to uh, reflect the fact that uh, their count of ICU numbers is clearly short by about 50 people. Um, no small number when we're talking about a very limited number of ICU beds in Ontario. Um, now, uh, I will take it uh, on, on good faith that they are working on it, um, but they, that has not happened yet. I, I mean, it just seems nonsensical that they would even use that as a criterion. I mean, the, the, as we were told for over a year now, really, uh, the concern here about critical care beds and ICU beds is that they're not there for anybody else. In other words, they're being taken up by, by COVID patients. And if somebody is still physically in that bed, I don't understand why all of a sudden they don't count that just because they don't seem to be showing symptoms anymore. Yeah, it was a, it was a surprise to me, i got to say. Um, this, this came up first when uh, I... I, I'm active on my Twitter account. I put out a whole bunch of charts. I put out a whole bunch of, of information for, for people who follow me and readers and also to help me understand. And I, I, I learned this when I, um, when I uh, charted the current number of ICU patients uh, using the Ontario numbers. And I, I had a response from several doctors saying, that's actually not real. Uh, and then I looked into it and no, it, it's not real. Now, the, the, the challenge here is that there really aren't that many uh, ICU beds in Ontario. You're right. Um, the issue is not necessarily how many COVID patients there are, so much as it is when you have a very large number of COVID patients, you've got a lot less room for people who have other issues that need critical care, like cancer patients or people who have traumatic injuries or, or that kind of thing. Uh, and without those beds, there's less care to go around. And we're not, we're not there yet in Ontario, but if things continue and if these case numbers keep spiking, we're going to see more people in hospitals and the pressure is going to get greater and greater and greater. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a picture in intensive care in hospitals that we've seen in other jurisdictions throughout this pandemic around the world, and it's not a good one. And we don't want to get there. No, we're not there yet. I agree with that assessment. Uh, and but but on the other hand, we also have heard data, and you guys have been reporting, uh, and I think rightly so, uh, that there are COVID patients being moved around from one hospital to another uh, to try to alleviate some of the stress. So, although on a prov- province-wide basis, maybe we're not there yet, but I guess there are some pockets Ed, that we should be concerned about. Yeah, we absolutely should. Um, we are seeing very high levels of, of intensive care burden on on the places that are seeing the highest rates of COVID right now. And, and right now, that's the greater Toronto-Hamilton area um, where, uh, you know, the, the rates of infection right now are right back up to where we were, um, or very close to where we were uh, around the time that uh, Premier Ford imposed the Boxing Day lockdown. That was, that was called on uh, December 21st, and the provincial... The provincial infection rate is almost right up to that same point. It's very, very close. It could pass it today or tomorrow. Um, and locally, in places like Toronto and Peel and Hamilton, um, we have uh, we have infection rates that are um, above the threshold. It's not a real threshold, but above the threshold that used to used to be the kind of thing that would automatically put people put these health units into this gray lockdown category. That's 100 cases weekly per 100,000 people. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's no joke. That's a lot. Um, it's not quite um, all the way up to where we were at the peak of wave two, but it is growing very fastly. And if things continue uh, as is, it, it, it may not take very long to get back up there. 
Uh, and, um, you know, one thing to keep in mind about this question about hospitalizations, and one thing that people should uh, should keep in mind and understand, is that in wave two, um, COVID hit worst in nursing homes and long-term care homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a, an absolute tragedy because those were the most vulnerable people in the province. Um, but for the most part, those people never actually went to hospital. Um, they ended up being treated, the vast majority of them, inside the nursing homes, even when very seriously ill. So that means that um, nursing homes weren't putting a huge burden on these intensive care units. Right now, what we're seeing is that the nursing homes are not the center of, of these COVID infections because nursing home residents are, in, are vaccinated for the most part. Um, so we've got a lot more community spread, but you know when we have community spread, those are the people um, that we're going to hospitals in wave two, and they're still the people that are going to hospitals in wave three. So you know you kind of need to keep in mind that just because we vaccinated nursing homes doesn't mean that's going to necessarily protect the hospitals. The vaccinations need to continue quite a lot, um, quite a lot more than that, to uh, to relieve the burden on these intensive care units. And why isn't there a, a, a consistent standard here? I mean, this sounds, when I read your piece uh, in the Star a few days ago, it, it, first thing that came to mind, of course, is some of the similar accusations that uh, Governor Cuomo in New York was facing uh, about uh, playing fast and loose with some of the numbers uh, to do with COVID patients in long-term care. It turned out that's the least of his worries compared to some of the other accusations that have come up yeah. since then. But, but, but by the same token, people are saying, wait a second here, why, why the different sets of numbers and why are you trying to do this? And it, it, did you get the sense at all that there was in, at least in some people's minds, in a, uh, a, a, an effort here to try to downplay the severity of what we're dealing with here? That's the accusation. Um, you know, we, we brought this to experts, and they said that this is, you know, it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's, well, you talked to Michael, it's, it's we talked to Michael bad, Werner. You know? I know yeah. one of the folks yeah. you talked to was, and, my, and Dr. Werner's been on our show many times talking about this, too, and he's been raising this red flag from the beginning, hasn't he? Yes, he has. Um, now, I, <laughs> I would hesitate to... Uh, to suggest that this is malicious. I, it, it is how they've been doing it from the start. And I, I kind of, my, my thinking is probably that they didn't quite realize how, how broken the, the number was. Now, that said, they haven't fixed it since we, we brought it to them and we brought it to them two weeks ago. So I would, I would, I would have hoped that they would have fixed it by now. Um, and it's unfortunate they have not. Data is hard, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I don't want to excuse someone for putting out bad data, because I do think this is bad data. Um, but generally speaking, Ontario has put out pretty good data um, from the start. They fixed a lot of problems. They've had a lot of problems. They're pretty transparent when you look at uh, other jurisdictions, especially other provinces in this country. Uh, and overall, I would give them, you know, something like a B plus on their data. Um, but this is a problem they got to fix. And uh, I hope that they're taking it seriously and they want to fix it quickly. To their credit, though, and, and you mentioned this in the piece, uh, the, the advisory board that actually does advise the premier and, and his cabinet, I guess, about what's going on, the Ontario Science Advisory Table, uh, they're using the, 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 the more efficient data, from what I understand. Yeah, they are. Um, that's another reason to sort of, for me, to think that the, uh, the official number is sort of an oversight more than anything, anything egregious. And that's because when you look at those, um, those official modeling projections, when you see those, those often frightening uh, numbers that are, are put out by uh, the Ontario Science Table, they are using the correct numbers from the, from the Critical Care Services Ontario. Uh, it's kind of been something like an open secret amongst people who look at these data um, that 
the CCSO number is the one you should be using and you should be ignoring the other one. Now, that doesn't help um, you or me or the public who are going to the Ontario.ca dashboard for the current picture of you know, the COVID-19 pandemic. They're going to see a number that is lower than, than reality. And they might not think that hospitalizations have gone up nearly as much as they have in wave three. Um, so, you know, it's it's less of a problem for the, the scientists, I think. It's more of a problem for the public and transparency and, you know, putting out numbers that make sense. Well, and what I'm concerned about here is is, is if these numbers are, are lower than they, they really should be, according to your reporting, uh, and, and they are, uh, because you've got the data to substantiate that, uh, that may be a contributing factor to the false sense of security a lot of us are having, that a lot of people are saying, hey, look, at you're letting your guard down. Maybe yeah. maybe these numbers are giving us this idea that, hey, you know what, it's not as bad. It's getting better. You know, we're near the end of the finish line here, and we're not. Yeah, one of the things I hear often, you know, I, I put out numbers daily, and one of the things I hear often from people is, well, why are you paying attention to cases? We should be paying attention to hospitalizations and deaths. And on the one hand, deaths, you know, deaths aren't up yet. Uh, and and they may not get up nearly as much as they did in wave two, and that's because nursing homes are vaccinated, right? Um, mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is hospitalizations are up, and they're up quite quickly. In fact, they're up worse than cases are right now. Uh, especially in intensive care, you know, our case averages, the rate of infections in this province is not back up to the peak of wave two, but the intensive care burden is. And that is something we need to be thinking of as, as a really, really kind of um, alarming sign about what's coming. And that's because, um, you know, wave three, we're dealing with, with these things called the variants of concern. And based on the research from um, from the UK all through the spring and from Ontario now, we've got unpublished research that the CBC has reported on. These variants cause more severe illness on average, which means that if you or I get it, you are more likely to end up in hospital or an ICU than you would have been with the previous version of COVID. Now, that, that if, you're, if you're me and you're mid-30s and relatively healthy, the risk is still not very high. It's higher than it's ever been, but it's not very high. But if you're in your 50s or 60s, you know, you're starting to get to be into pretty appreciable risk of, of serious outcomes. And um, that means that if you've got a, a, a wave three that's more in the community, you're going to see more people in, in hospitals. And they may not die. Uh, they're definitely probably not going to die at the rates that we saw in nursing homes. But, you know, a trip to the ICU for COVID is no joke. Uh, and and that's the kind of thing that that leads to long term symptoms, and these have their uh, their uh, very big impact on the people who get sick. Yeah, and, and as we were told from the beginning, and, and I think we've seen this, and, and you know, they say the overwhelming majority of people that may actually get COVID nineteen are, are not going to have to go to the hospital at all, and that was reassuring. But when you see that number that have to be admitted to hospital, and any and even worse that have to be admitted to ICU, uh, that's where people like Dr. Werner and others are saying, look, you better pay attention to this. Uh, it's a great piece, and I'm so glad you guys did the research on this, Ed, to give us a clearer picture as to what's going on. Uh, keep doing what you're doing, because we need that sort of information. And uh, thanks so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Take care. Ed Tubb, who is the assignment editor, one of the assignment editors, that is, for the Toronto Star. Uh, the piece is about a week old, but I think it's still on the page uh, for the Toronto website. Uh, Ontario criticized for reporting misleading ICU numbers for COVID-19 patients. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to spend some time on, on something I think is very, very important that may not be on your radar right now, uh, but it will be shortly. And this is a, a bill that the, the Ford government has introduced. It's a Bill 254, which proposes uh, to allow wealthy donors to buy even more influence over parties and politicians, which is likely going to benefit the government that's in power right now. And by the way, uh, the next elections uh, a week um, a year from June okay so it's not that far away and if this is passed that's going to have an immediate impact joining us to talk about all of this is uh, Duff Conniger Duff of course is the co-founder of Democracy Watch uh, who are uh, laser focused on this piece of legislation right now Duff thank you so much for the time glad you could be with us today my pleasure Bill this looks to me off, and forgive me for being the cynic here, uh, something that the government's trying to slide in here because we're focused on pandemics and vaccines, and as we should be, rightly so, I get that. But this is going to have a major impact on how elections are run. Indeed, which has a major impact on who ends up in government and uh, whether voters' uh, will is, is uh, heard in elections and we get a government uh the best government that voters want or do we get the best government that money can buy well if this bill is passed it would pretend to think that maybe it's going to be the latter maybe you can explain to our listeners because there's a lot to unpack here about this and and none of it looks very good as far as i'm concerned no very much so um a few different uh parts of the bill are of great concern they're undemocratic unethical and and some of the parts are I think, actually likely unconstitutional. And the, the, as a result, court cases may stop those uh, provisions from coming into effect. Uh, and I'm guessing there will be lawsuits about it. Um, the first part is that it's undemocratic and unethical, is that uh, they're doubling the donation limit so that uh, someone will now be able to donate <clears throat> about $3,300 to each political party and then also to a candidate's campaign, so in a total $6,600 during an election year. And uh, that's way more than an average voter can afford. In fact, if you look at the stats, and not all the stats are even available, unfortunately, because donations under $100 are not disclosed. But even if you look at the stats of donations over $100, the median donation, which really is the indication of what an average voter can afford, is uh, for three of the main parties, less than $100, and for the PCs, only $200. Well, that's what most people are giving. And why would you ever then allow wealthy people to give more than that? Because then they're just going to have unethical influence because of that money that they've given to a party over a party. And what the PCs, the Ford government is allowing is someone to give $6,600. To a party and, and the candidate they support in an election year. Just completely undemocratic and unethical move. And I know some people are going to say, well, what's the big deal? You know, so they're getting more money. Uh, you know, these guys promise good government, not that they're just going to, you know, cozy up to the people that give the money. But these people get an opportunity to exert more influence on government. And I don't care who's in power, whether it's liberals, conservatives, uh, even NDP. We don't have that in Ontario right now. But uh, people that put a lot of money into this expect to at least get the ear of the governing party right now. And, and that, by definition, means that they can influence policy decisions. Very much so. Access equals influence. And, of course, the politicians always say, and Ford says this a lot, no no lobbyist who's done favors for me or donors have any influence over me. Essentially, he's saying I'm not a human because psychologists have studied 
and done all sorts of tests worldwide. And what they've found across humanity, every human across the world, is that if you do a favor for someone or give them a gift, that is the number one way to influence them. It creates a sense of obligation in their mind to return the favor. And so if you can donate $6,600 to a party in the candidate, and also in secret, which is allowed, uh, hold a fundraising event with 100 of your friends who also give $6,600 each, you've raised a ton of money for the party, and I'm sure you're getting greater access as a result. Your calls are getting taken first. If 10 people call and, and 10 voters have a concern and they're trying to reach Doug Ford, uh, the one that will get through is the one that's raised a bunch of money for the party, even though if they're the 10th caller and not the first caller. And we don't know those details because uh, politicians across the country have decided, well, we're going to hide who contacts us. And you can't even through access to information laws, which are called access to information laws, you think we'd have access to this information about who they're talking to. What are they doing on the job? Who's getting through to them? Who's communicating with them? And lobbyists have to disclose some details, but a lot of secret lobbying is allowed. So they're hiding the fact that they're giving access very likely to the people who are raising the money, most money and, and, and donating the most money while claiming it doesn't influence them, which goes against every single scientific test that's been done of humans worldwide over the past several decades. And it's just clear this money buys influence and you get the best money, best government money can buy instead of the best government the voters want. And look, let me connect the dots here for, for some of our listeners, because the number of the things we've talked about here, we've had more fulsome discussions about with individual things. Uh, Doug Ford, all of a sudden, uh, you know, more than once now, has hinted and now actually up in Pickering actually tried uh, to build on, on top of the green belt, okay? Even yes. though the local councils, all of the local councils said, we don't want this, we don't. Uh, he's going to build a new highway through uh, part of the green belt, even though uh, the, the, the councils of Mississauga and Vaughan said, don't do this, we don't want it in our community community so if the local council is saying no who's influencing the government to say yeah we're going to go ahead with this and answer that question you know it's the people with money it is and it's developers who have uh, donated a lot of money to the pc party they used to donate to the liberals when the liberals were in power sure. oh yeah whoever's that yeah who's that whoever's in the corner office gets the biggest checks that's that's a reality yeah. isn't it and they're also fundraising and uh and these these changes, and it's not just you know gr granting and going ahead with these projects. The Ford government has actually changed two laws to make it illegal to try and even stop it from going through. That's how far they've gone to uh, help these developers who have helped them. And uh, it it should be uh, unethical. I think there might possibly be some uh, conflict of interest complaints that can be filed about these recent decisions by the Ford government to uh, grant this development in the Greenbelt uh, because of the level of donations and support. Uh, if anyone knows of, of whether any of these developers have done fundraising for the PC party uh, or for Ford himself for his leadership campaign, that would make it illegal. So please uh, contact the Watch if you have that information. Because Definitely it would another element. a conflict of interest.
Absolutely. There's another element to this, too, and it's it's third-party advertising. Uh, and, and this is something I, maybe the average individual may not fully comprehend, because I know a lot of politicians, especially once they become uh, the government, uh, kind of give a thumbs down to third-party advertising. Oh, they're just a bunch of special interest groups, that they're, et cetera. But there's a place for this in the in the democratic process and in the electoral process. And, and this bill, to my mind, would stifle that. Well, it will stifle it more than it has been. Yeah. Because what they're taking is there is a current limit that a group uh, can spend about $600,000 over the six-month period leading up to the election and then uh, election campaign and then another $100,000 during the election campaign. That figure has been set totally arbitrarily. Why $600,000? The government couldn't show any, any study that they've done to show that that's in a reasonable limit. Now what they're doing is they're saying you're only going to be allowed to spend that amount of money over a 12-month period. So starting this June, one year before the fixed election date next year, interest groups will have this limit. And it not only applies to ads that say, don't vote for this party or this candidate or vote for this party or this candidate. It applies to any ad that they do on any issue. And what the government is trying to do is stifle groups from criticizing them during the last year leading up to the election because all their ad spending on criticism will be uh, counted towards that limit, a uh, total limit of spending six, about $600,000. And uh, I think it's unconstitutional to go that far to also say you can't even do ads on issues and have the limit apply to that. Uh, the B.C. Court of Appeal ruled that the rules in B.C. that the government tried to put in like that are unconstitutional. The Trudeau government at the federal level didn't even try to limit issue ads. The only ads that are limited in the few months leading up to the election at the federal level are ads that say uh, vote for a candidate or against a candidate. But if you want to advertise about an issue because you're concerned about a bill the government's putting through or some announcement or tax or something, then you can advertise uh, that. And uh, the limit is so high at the federal level, it's really meaningless. So the Ford government is trying to slip through this this, uh, rule that is not based on any evidence in terms of uh, what the limit should be. So it's arbitrary, and it's trying to stifle criticism of the government during the year leading up to the election. Very serious thing to do, to, to violate uh, and, and uh, restrict freedom of expression in this way. And I think the courts will, will I, I think the government should remove it from the bill or refer it to the Court of Appeal for a ruling on whether it's constitutional. But even if they don't do that, it's going to be challenged in court, and I think it will likely be ruled unconstitutional. So that's how far the, the Ford government's going to try and rig the election in their favor. They're trying to violate Canadians' fundamental human rights. The reason I was talking about the third party, and I know you and I have had this discussion in the past, is it gives the average individual or groups you know, a, a, an opportunity to weigh in on this. And if it, failing that, Duff, and if this legislation goes through, essentially the governing party gets to dictate the, the, the criteria and what's going to be dictated and what's going to be talked about during the election campaign. They set the agenda. Uh, and 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 somebody who's concerned about well the green belt or, or any a number of other different issues right now uh, minimum wage uh, you know uh, any of that stuff their their voices are stifled all the way through this campaign now is and and all you're going to hear is the government rhetoric about any particular subject. Yes, and uh, now to be clear, it's not a gag law. You can still make news releases, hold events, news conferences, yeah. um, but the advertising limit should be set at a realistic level. There sure. should be limits. We don't want wealthy interest groups uh, overwhelming 
uh, public debate on any issue with huge advertising campaigns and drowning out other voices. But the limits should be realistic, and you can't just set them arbitrarily. And that's what the government's done. The $600,000 limit that was currently there for over six months, that was set arbitrarily by the Liberals. And now they're, they're saying, well, that, that same limit's going to apply to a 12-month period. Well, that's arbitrary, too. Like, why 12 months? Why the 600000 It's all arbitrary. And one of the worst parts about it is if you only spend $500, which means you're not a big wealthy group, you're just maybe a community group trying to get your voice heard through ads, uh, you have to register. You have to set up a separate bank account. You have to disclose your donors. There's all this onerous reporting that has to be done if you're only spending $500 on advertising. And that those kind of restrictions should be aimed at the, those who are spending lots of money. You know, at the federal level, you don't have to do that kind of disclosure and reports uh, if you spend under ten thousand dollars. So, which is you know, this is, is a relatively small advertising campaign. And again, two onerous restrictions. They're trying to restrict free speech too much for too long, and I think it will be struck down as a result, uh, and and it will be challenged uh, in the courts. Um, definitely by some of the big interest groups who who uh, uh, will definitely have the resources to take this to court. So why not just refer to the court for a ruling on whether it's constitutional before and don't get into this uh, uh, having all these interest groups have to take it to court. That's the way the Ford government should do it if they were interested in doing things democratically and ethically, which they are clearly not. Uh, you know, they all sing for the same song sheet. You know, you elect us and we'll, we're, we're going to move forward on election, electoral reform. Uh, this, this is electoral reform, to be sure, but it's going in the wrong direction. Definitely. Is, is there anybody... The things, the things we need are we need an honesty in politics yeah. law so they can't bait us with false promises. We need a right to vote for none of the above, uh, which we have in Ontario, but Elections Ontario refuses to really advertise and make people aware of it. And... Uh, we need these kind of democratic changes, including lowering the donation limit to an amount an average voter can afford so that people can't buy influence with their money. And when they do come up with some of these reforms, whether it's you know, to, to ban large union donations or to limit them or whatever, the, as they've done in the past, there, there's always a, a way to get in through the side door with most of these. Well, one of the big things that needs to be disclosed is uh, volunteer labor. That's clearly currently not disclosed as a donation. And uh, it makes it uh, pretty easy for corporations, uh, unions, other organizations to give people time off to go and work for a party, uh, paid time off, and just hide it because it's not disclosed. Mm-hmm. So you need all donations of money, property, services disclosed and tracked. So that uh, we we close these loopholes uh, that uh, allow generally the big organizations uh, to exploit the loopholes to have more influence over parties and politicians. It, you know, we have a fundamental democratic principle on election day: one person, one vote. And the political finance system should uphold that same principle, which means no one person should be able to use money or favors or donations, providing volunteer services, uh, any more than anyone else can. Because if they can do that, then they'll have more influence than any other voter. And that's just a fundamentally undemocratic and unethical system to allow that to happen. So there's lots of priority changes for election law and election uh, finances and donation laws. But the Ford government is focusing on the ones that are going to help the PC party the most because they are supported by the most wealthy donors, but they get about half their money in donations of 
thousand dollars or more in last year, and uh, it's all they're all trying to they're trying to rig the election in, in their favor by making these changes and trying to slip them through as well at a time when no one's called for them, and of course everyone's focused on. Uh, trying to deal with the COVID crisis. Exactly. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for the time today. This is something I just wanted to put on the front burner here because people need to be aware of that. Because as you say, uh, if this were to pass, uh, well, just a couple of months from now, it's already going to have an impact on, on who's going to be spending what on the on the upcoming provincial election. We'll stay in touch as this unfolds. Thanks so much for being with us today, Duff. Yeah, I'll keep you updated. Hopefully the opposition Please do. parties will, will try and win some uh, changes to it, but likely the Ford government's trying to ram this through. They're, they're having one day of hearings, bid it tomorrow morning, and then right to passing the bill through committee and on to ram it through as soon as they can, exactly. and as secretly as they can. Exactly. Uh, well, we'll talk about it after that happens, or hopefully there will be some blocks in the way. Thanks again, Duff. Thanks very much for your interest. Duff Conagher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last week we talked to you about the uh, the sanctions that uh, Canada and a number of other countries had imposed on China. Uh, they retaliated, of course, late last week, uh, their decision to sanction uh, not just the subcommittee uh, from the Canadian Parliament, but also an individual MP. Uh, caught a few people by surprise and raised some eyebrows. Uh, that member of Parliament is uh, Michael Chung. Michael is the uh, Conservative MP for Wellington Halton Hills. Uh, joining us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Michael, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Great to be here, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what happened last week. First of all, were you surprised that they singled you out? Uh, I was initially surprised, but then when I thought about it, it uh, it wasn't surprising. Um, it's clear to me that they're trying to silence elected officials, both here and in the United States, in the UK, and in Europe. Uh, and we won't be silenced. We will continue to speak up on their gross violations of international law and human rights in China. But we've seen in the past, Michael, and, and this is not the first time you've spoken out about this, uh, but mm-hmm. uh, you know there's going to be pushback. And, and Is there a, a little voice in the back of your head or anybody else who, who, who dare, dares to do this that uh, you know there's going to be some sort of a pushback and you wonder just what it's going to be? Oh, not at all. Um, we have to stand up for these principles. Look, our our democracies, both here and abroad, are based on three fundamental principles. They're based on a belief in human rights and freedoms. They're based on a belief in democratic institutions, and they're they're based on a belief in the rule of law. We have to stand by these principles. The minute we're silent about these fundamental principles is the minute we undermine the very foundation of our societies and our democracy. But this has gone on for so long, and and the world, frankly, not just Canada, but the world, for a longer time, Michael, seemed to have turned their back on this, and uh, it, it only made a bad situation worse. Yeah, China's changed in the last decade. Uh, what were once a few irritants in the relationship between China and Canada and other countries has uh, evolved into a full-blown series of threats. They have two of our citizens wrongfully detained, another one they've put on death row, another one they've uh, they, they kidnapped, essentially, and brought back to China. Uh, they've threatened our companies, our our economy, they're now threatening these fundamental values of human rights. Um, and so in the last several years, China has changed and become a threat. I think the world is now waking up. I think democracies are now starting to work in concert to counter these threats. And we have to. Uh, we, you know, For 75 years since the end of the Second World War, we have built a stable system 
um, in the aftermath of the horrors of the 20th century, uh, we cannot stand by silently and allow that system of human rights, of a belief in the international rules-based system, to be challenged by China, which is actively undermining it. There have been, well, for lack of a better expression, I guess, totalitarian communist regimes in different parts of the world uh, since World War II. Uh, but there have been, at some point, Michael, people that stood up to them, whether it was uh, in, in Czechoslovakia in 1968, uh, Lech Walesa in, in Poland. I mean, there have been so many examples of this. Uh, we maybe think back to Tiananmen Square many, many years ago now. Uh, those, in, in some cases, actually changed the landscape. They changed the political landscape in those countries. That still hasn't happened in China. Why not? Well, that's, uh, that's a good question, and I think the reason for that is that we, as Western democracies, made a mistake after the fall of the Berlin Wall. We, we made two assumptions, one of which I think was correct, which was that by liberalizing trade and investment with countries like China, that we would mutually benefit uh, our economies. And in the last 30 years, we've seen a tremendous growth in global trade. Uh, not everybody has benefited from that, but generally it has benefited uh, economies on both sides of that equation, both China and economies like Canada. Um, but we made a second assumption that was wrong, uh, and that a second assumption was that by liberalizing trade and investment, by increasing trade with countries like China, that we would gradually bring them into the rules-based international order, that we would gradually improve their record on human rights, on democracy and on the rule of law. The opposite has happened. All they have done is use their newfound power and wealth to reinforce their authoritarianism and to try to export that system around the world. Uh, and so I think that is clearly an assumption that has been revisited by democracies, and now we're starting to realize that we've got to work together to counter these threats. That's that's the ongoing challenge, though, isn't it? I mean, China is a, a global economic power. Uh, some would suggest they're already the number one economic power in the world. Uh, if they're not, they're very close to it, and maybe soon to be. You can't ignore them. You can't just shut the, the door on them. Uh, but at the same time, you have to balance that against uh, against their record against human rights uh, and, and a number of other uh, atrocities, frankly, that we've heard about in the last little while. H how do you find that balance? And is it is it always is it that fluid, Michael, that it's always going to shift from from one of those to the other? Well, Bill, I think that's a great question. I think two points are important to, to note. First, you know, while trade with, between Canada and China is important, it pales in comparison to the trade that we do with democracies like the United States. Mm -hmm. You know, we export 20 times more to the United States every year than we export to China. And China is our second largest trading partner. But trade with the United States by a factor of 20 is by far and away more important to the Canadian economy. The second point is, is that when you take our democracies together, uh, they far outweigh the size of China's economy. The United States on, in, on it, unto itself is 50% larger than China's economy. But if you add in the European Union, the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, you know, we are far larger than the Chinese economy. So while it is an important part of the global economy, uh, we shouldn't overstate uh, the importance of it relative to our trade with the United States. So is that a mistake that we and other democratic governments have made in the past, that we gave that economic aspect of China so much uh, weight that the, that we, we did turn our backs on some of the other atrocities and some of the things we've heard? I think, I think that's right. I think that's, that's true. I think, 
I think we made a mistake in in, a, in and around the year 2000 in admitting uh, China to the most favored nation status uh, in the W in the World Trade Organization. Um, they have abused that position. They are not playing by the rules. They've they conduct cyber attacks on Canadian governments and Canadian companies. Uh, they've they steal intellectual property. They don't respect intellectual property regimes that have been put in uh, oh. the role of an upstanding partner in the global trading system. And at the same time, we we turned we didn't emphasize human rights and uh, and and the rule of law because we thought that they would gradually come along, but they did quite the opposite. And your point's well taken because we've seen this happen. Well, even with the the, the old Soviet Union, uh, you know, the more Western influence there was there, the the, the political landscape seemed to change. Uh, although they probably took a few steps back when Putin became the leader of that country, but nonetheless, uh, there was an influence from from Western democracies and Western economies. Uh, China's been able to fight that off, and unfortunately, in situations like this, so we're in a situation right now uh, where. We seem to be a nation alone, though. I mean, under the previous U.S. administration, uh, the G7 was was eroded, the power of the G7, uh, of NATO, of so many other uh, agencies, Michael, that we relied on to be partners to, to try to stand up to, to the bullies like, like China, the Chinese government and things of this nature. Uh, does the new administration give you hope that perhaps those alliances can be, can be renewed once again to give us that sort of strength and, and that backup? Yeah, I think the new administration has given me hope that that's going to happen. Uh, President Biden has called for a coalition of democracies to work together to counter these threats uh, to democracies, these threats to our citizens, to our companies, and to our values. And we're starting to see that happen. We're starting to see um, Canada coordinate with the United States and with the United Kingdom and with Europe on sanctions against officials responsible for these human rights violations. You know, democracies are are often slow to to act. It's just the very nature of a democracy. You've got to bring people together and get a consensus before you can proceed. Uh, Compared to authoritarian systems of government, democracies are much slower, often much slower in making decisions. But history proves that when democracies do eventually come together, they always prevail. And I'm confident that working in concert with our allies like Australia, the United States, uh, the UK, and Western Europe, uh, and Europe in general, that we can counter these threats, and in the long run, I believe that we will prevail. You made an interesting point that I think is very germane to the discussion here, too. You talked about uh, the the alliances between the European uh, nations, uh, the European Union, for that matter, too, the U.K., the United States, and Canada. Uh, China can pick us off one at a time, and, and, and you know, some rather onerous uh, stuff can be done and said, and, and there can be economic sanctions, which can have an impact. But in unity, uh, one large body like that speaking with one voice uh, is, is a much stronger voice against uh, the atrocities. Yeah, and, and that's precisely why China is putting sanctions on elected officials, both here in Canada, in the United States, in Europe, uh, for speaking up, because they are very worried. They know that if we continue to speak up, and we will, uh, that they that we will be very effective in countering these threats. And so they're trying to preempt that kind of coordinated action by putting sanctions. But what they don't realize, what they have miscalculated, is that it's not going to work. In fact, it's doing quite the opposite. It's bringing further attention to our efforts to hold China accountable for these violations of international law. And so I'm confident that 
you know, we will, as Western democracies, prevail uh, in countering these threats. Um, we always have. You know, if you look at the challenges that democracies faced in the 20th century, uh, it's not exactly the same thing. It's not an armed conflict that we're facing now. But if you look at the early dark days of World War II, uh, it looked like democracies were a chaotic mess. Uh, we couldn't coordinate our actions. The U.S. wasn't uh, working with other allies like Canada and the United Kingdom. Uh, we were back on our heels against authoritarian regimes, totalitarian regimes. Uh, but eventually we got our act together and we all know um, ha- what happened. We prevailed. And I'm confident that in the current context with the threats that we're facing from China, that working together with our allies, we will prevail. We talked about some of the individual cases. The two Michaels come to mind, obviously, both of whom apparently have had trials over the last couple of days. Uh, there's another who's on death row for alleged drug offenses. Uh, I, I, you mentioned the Salil situation, who was basically abducted and brought back to China and, and incarcerated. Uh, and, and those are horrific examples, and I'm glad you brought all of them up. Uh, the, and there are more, by the way. There are more Canadians that, that are being incarcerated and, and people from other countries as well. Uh, but... What seemed to, to bring this to a point, Michael, was, was the situation of the Uyghurs uh, some weeks ago that w- came to light. Uh, the motion that, that you and your uh, fellow MPs passed in the, in the Commons uh, called a genocide. That really seemed to rankle the Chinese government. Uh, but you stand by that word, don't you? I absolutely stand by the word. Uh, the very first international human rights treaty adopted by, uh, under the United Nations was the 1948 Genocide Convention. It's a treaty that both Canada and China are party to. And the reason why it was the first human rights treaty adopted was because of the horrors of the Second World War. We as civilized nations came together and decided that never again would we want to witness the horrors of the Holocaust, where some six million Jews were murdered. And so we came together, negotiated this treaty, and here we are some 75 years later, And we once again are witnessing a genocide taking place. And we can't stand by silently uh, and not act, as we saw what happened in the 1990s in Rwanda. We have Mm -hmm. to act. We have to come together when the evidence is clear. And the evidence has become clear in the last year. Uh, The Genocide Convention defines a number of things that constitute genocide. Uh, Any one of them is uh, is sufficient to conclude a genocide is taking place. At least two of them are present um, in China's actions against the Uyghur Muslim minority, one of which is uh, preventing births from taking place. There's evidence that, of mass sterilizations taking place in the form of forced abortions, forced insertion of, IU, of uh, IUDs, and, uh, and forced, uh, forced other birth control measures. There's also evidence that children are being separated in a mass systemic way from their parents. And both of those things constitute uh, elements of a genocide. In fact, uh, since China's crackdown on the Uyghur people some six years ago, births in that region of China among the Uyghur minority have plummeted more than 60%. And so it's clear that China is perpetrating a genocide and we no longer can ignore it and we no longer can stand by silently, which is the reason why we introduced that motion and passed it in the House of Commons. How far can we go and how far should we go? I mean, you, you, you brought up the Rwandan situation and uh, 
we, we knew of that. Uh, our, our, the Western response to that was woefully inadequate, as we know. It went on far too long, and, and, and so many people were, were, were murdered in a genocide. Uh, we hopefully have learned from that. Uh, what do we do in a situation like this? I mean, they, they basically, as, as you know, have simply categorized this as an inter internal matter, mind your own business, uh, and, mm -hmm. and expect that we're going to go away. I, I get the sense from what you're saying and what others are saying is you're not going to go away. But, but how far do you go here? Well, there's a range of measures. There's a range of tools in the toolkit, so to speak, uh, that governments can use to uh, put pressure on China to stop this genocide. Uh, the federal government recently introduced measures, um, sanctions on four individuals in that region of China and one mm -hmm. entity, a company, uh, for perpetrating this genocide. It's a good first start, but more needs to be done. We're calling on the government to ban imports of tomatoes and cotton from China. Uh, Xinjiang province, which is the region where the Uyghur Muslim minority lives, produces one-fifth of the world's cotton and uh, a lot of the world's uh, tomato exports. Um, while they are a significant uh, producer of these tomatoes and this cotton, there are many, many other alternatives from democracies and from other countries that are not violating human rights. Um, and the reason why we believe the government should ban cotton and tomatoes is that there is evidence that the Uyghur population is being forced and coerced into picking this cotton and to uh, producing these tomatoes through uh, forced labor conditions and through enslavement. So uh, we're calling the government to ban those products to ensure that they're not being imported into Canada. We also think that they should suspend payments of Canadian tax dollars to the China-led Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. This is a bank that's led by uh, the Chinese government that is trying to expand its influence throughout the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, Canada joined this bank about five years ago and is contributing hundreds of millions of dollars to this bank. Uh, there are regular transfers from the federal government to this bank, one of which happened recently, some $40 million. We believe the government should immediately suspend these transfers and withdraw from this bank. So those are just two, med two tools in the toolkit that we should be using. Uh, we should be encouraging allies to take similar measures. And collectively, I think these will put an immense amount of pressure on Chinese authorities. I've got about a minute or so left. Uh, there's talk about boycotts, too, and specifically about the upcoming uh, Olympics in China. Should Canada boycott those Olympics? Well, we will, we, we're calling on the government as a first start to seek the relocation of these Olympics, uh, to formally request of the International Olympic Committee a relocation of the Olympics in because of the genocide taking place. We do not believe it's appropriate under the Olympic International Olympic Charter uh, for an Olympic Games to take place in the shadow of the genocide. You know, if that call is rejected, then we'll have to consider other actions that could be taken. Um, there have been discussions about other measures um, as an alternative to relocation of the games. But at the end of the day, uh, we cannot blithely allow games to go on as normal uh, when a genocide is taking place in the host country.
Michael Chong standing up, of course, to the genocide that goes on there. The Canadian government is uh, saying all the right things, too, but uh, actions, of course. Uh, I, I know we're just about out of time here, but and I know some people are going to listen to your, your talk here about some of the economic sanctions. Those do work. I mean, you know, we've seen what's happened in Russia uh, as a result of Crimea. We said what happened in Iran, uh, and, and they do have an impact. They may not make headlines, but uh, they do have an impact. So uh, we'll see just how far we're going to go on this. Michael, as always, thank you so much for the time. It was great having you on the program today. Thanks, Bill, for having me. Take care. Michael Chong, of course, conservative MP for Wellington Halton Hills, who is now sanctioned by the Chinese government for his comments about the genocide that is going on there. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.